0: I certainly don't see mind as something that unfolds within the confines of the skull. That's, of course, an important part of the processes we call mind. But I increasingly sense mind, first of all, as a process. It's not an entity. And importantly, that process necessarily involves what's unfolding in interaction. Between my experiential center of self and everyone and everything else.
1: Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today I'm speaking with psychologist, contemplative researcher, and Zen Buddhist teacher Al Kazniak. Al is an emeritus professor at the University of Arizona, where he headed the psychology department as well as the fantastic Center for Consciousness Studies there. He's also served as interim president of the Mind and Life Institute, which is how I first met him about 10 years ago. Al's been involved in contemplative science since the earliest days of the field, and he's generated a lot of insights about how meditation impacts our thoughts, emotions, and sense of self. We spoke about all that when I caught up with Al this past winter, First, he shares his own story of how he came to this work and his parallel interests in Buddhism and neuropsychology and how they came to intersect. Then we dive into some of his research on meditation, emotion, and attention. And we talk about very early sensory processing and how our view of self impacts the way we take in and interpret the world around us. Al also shares some of his work on how meditation might change the cognitive effort that's involved in emotion regulation. And that takes us into a wonderful exploration of how his own experience has shifted through practice. This is honestly one of the most detailed and personal descriptions that I think we've had on the show about how meditation can change the sense of self. I thought it was really fascinating. Along the way, we get into ideas about attention and the very beginnings of an emotion, or what's known as affective tone, and we talk about how it's actually impossible to separate attention and emotion. Al shares some of his thoughts about free will versus what he calls free won't, which I love, and we talk about viewing the mind as a process rather than an entity or a thing and what that means for science. Finally, we touch on the need to increase access to contemplative ideas and practices and the value of interdisciplinary dialogue and the power of the in-between spaces. Al is not only a highly distinguished scientist, he's transitioned in his retirement to teaching Buddhism. He's received Dharma transmission from Roshi Joan Halifax of the Upaya Zen Center. She was also a guest on the show recently. And Al now leads a Zen Sangha in Tucson, Arizona. He's also a phenomenally warm and funny and wise and kind human being. You can listen to his Dharma talks and also check out some of the research we discussed in today's episode in the show notes. I really love this conversation, especially Al's rich first-person reflections on his own experience of meditation. I hope some of this resonates for you. It's my pleasure to share with you Al Kazniak. Oh, welcome, Al. It is so wonderful to be here with you. Thanks for joining us.
0: Very good to be here with you.
1: I would love to hear a little bit about your story and kind of how you got into studying the mind from the different perspectives that, that you have, actually, which is many different perspectives.
0: Uh, well, thanks for that invitation. Uh, you know, it's a slippery slope when you ask an old man to do that sort of thing. <laughs> so I'll I'll try to be... Appropriately brief. Um, You know, relevant particularly to the Mind and Life Institute and my interests that uh, coincided with the mission of uh, Mind and Life. When I was in college, I admit rather reluctantly took a world's religion course because at the time I thought I was, you know, a uh, sophisticated wannabe scientist and uh, was done with that part of my early life. But in retrospect, very, very grateful that I did take that course. And I was introduced to Buddhism, which I knew very little about prior to that time. Uh, And that stimulated an interest, particularly in Zen Buddhism, which has continued throughout the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that time, I, of course, was also uh, doing all of the undergraduate preparatory work uh, toward uh, graduate study in psychology uh, with a particular emphasis on the biological aspects, neuropsychology in particular. Um, and after I uh, finished my graduate study and then completed my clinical neuropsychology internship, uh, I was fortunate in securing an academic position at a uh, large medical school in the Chicago area, and then after a few years of that, subsequently at the University of Arizona, where uh, then I've, I've been since that time now, since 2015, serving as an emeritus professor. So I really focused in the early years, really about the first 15 years or so of my research career, Almost exclusively on age related disorders of the central nervous system and studying those. Uh, I enjoyed uh, generous support from the NIH and a number of other sources. And so that all went uh, quite well. My interest in Buddhism uh, really was confined mostly to reading. I was what they call a book Buddhist. And In that, I was able to dabble a little bit in in sitting meditation. I did not have a a teacher during that time, and I really wasn't, uh, you know, sort of daily regular, not until the middle 1980s when, with my career well-launched and my family, you know, my two children of school age. I was able to discipline myself and and develop a daily practice. And that then evolved over time. Eventually I uh, found a primary teacher uh, in Roshi Joan Halifax at Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, and uh, have continued in Zen study and practice. And now since uh, Uh, I received Dharma transmission as a lay teacher about uh, 11 years or so ago. I now teach within a uh, local sangha that's an affiliate of Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, uh, which keeps me very busy. Uh The research on um, contemplative issues, particularly Contemplative neuroscience, and uh, we also use psychophysiologic kinds of measures in our research. That didn't really begin until the middle to late 90s, when, for various reasons, you know, including that it became uh, more possible to, you know, retain your respect as an academic and still be you know, kind of out front about doing that kind of, of research. Right. So we began with uh, some admittedly stumbling studies, small sample sizes. And we I think we presented our, our first paper using event-related potential methodology, a kind of EEG-derived uh, measure focusing upon attention in the late 90s.
1: That's still quite early. I mean, that's really some of the first studies were published then, yeah. It was early.
0: There, there, were, there were others who were predecessors, and I was, you know, happy to follow in their footsteps. <laughs> uh, they really helped clear a lot of the underbrush mm. uh, scientifically to get this area started. So we became very interested in how meditation affects emotion and emotion regulation. Mm -hmm. And that then became the primary contemplative focus in the laboratory. Throughout this time, I was continuing in my work on uh, aging and Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. That remained what I often call my bread and butter Mm -hmm. uh, research because that's where my primary funding streams were coming from although increasingly uh, i received uh, small amounts of, of funding for the contemplative research also we finally felt confident in uh, that emotion focused work and you know the technical things such as uh, adequate you know comparison groups mm-hmm. and uh, sufficient sample sizes for statistical purposes And published our first paper in 2006 from that work with my then graduate student and now colleague at the National Institute on Aging, Liz Nielsen. We talked about that work at uh, the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute meetings, where that very first Summer Research Institute that I spoke at was in 2005.
1: Okay, yeah. That was only the second one, I think.
0: It was the second one. <laughs> and it it was just a terribly exciting meeting for me because, you know, the first time entirely devoted to this area of research uh, within a, a context that allowed for a, a contemplative atmosphere with meditation practice sessions, etc., and uh, that then became a, a staple. I, I attended those for several years after that.
1: I'm curious did you get looped into Mind and Life through Roshi Joan Halifax, or how did you find the community? Ah,
0: that's a great question. So I actually uh, met Roshi Joan Halifax through Mind and Life, it happened in the other direction. Huh. You know, I I had heard about the mind and life meetings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Mm -hmm. Dharamsala. And of course, that was the primary activity of mind and life for, you know, some years. But in 1994, here in Tucson at the University of Arizona, we organized the first meeting that we called Toward a Science of Consciousness. We did those meetings every other year. And then by 1997, we're very fortunate to secure substantial funding from the Fetzer Institute Mm. to launch a Center for Consciousness Studies here. And it was through that that I first met Adam Engel, uh, one of the co-founders, as of course you know, of Mind and Life, and uh, the chief executive officer at that time. He was uh, very interested after we started uh, in establishing the Center for Consciousness Studies in ways that mind and life might be able to look toward what we were doing as you know, potential uh, models for how mind and life might be able to fund itself.
1: Mm, interesting. Uh, because
0: that was, that was a big question at the time. How do you sustain mm-hmm. something like this? So we had a number of of conversations. And then once the Summer Research Institute was started, it provided a way for me to to have a connection to mind and life.
1: Right, okay. Uh,
0: Eventually then um, co-chairing the Summer Research Institute Planning Committee uh, in the 2007-2008 academic year.
1: Great. And so... You said a lot of your work in the contemplative space had focused on emotion regulation. Do you have take homes from your body of work that you learned or that has been learned from the field about the capacity of practice to help with our emotions?
0: Yeah, yeah. I would say tentative, uh-huh. uh, you know, ways of of addressing that that question. We started off with a hypothesis concerning. Um, enhanced sensitivity to information from the body, to what we often call interoceptive information. And in the course of doing that research, I think uh, both Liz Nielsen and I and then others I worked with uh, among graduate students subsequently, came to sense that that at least was not the whole story and that there were aspects of emotion regulation which clearly was enhanced by longer-term meditation practice, Uh, or at least maybe I should say that more accurately. It was strongly correlated with amount of, of meditation practice because these studies utilized extant samples of meditation practitioners. Mm-hmm. We these were not the sort of double-blind, uh, randomized, controlled studies. So we utilized available samples of longer-term practitioners in both Zen and uh, Vipassana style of meditation practice. And in those studies, in order to minimize some of the the other potential method problems. So, you know, if you know this is a study of, of emotion, and you would know that by virtue of, you know, we show emotionally arousing, you know, images to people. Right. Uh, and you're a meditation practitioner, you might be influenced to present yourself or engage in your responses to those images in ways that might or might not, you know, reflect the actual state of affairs. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: There there would be expectation bias possibilities. Mm -hmm. So we thought we might minimize those by using something that's called a masking procedure. And what that involves is very brief exposure to these visual, emotionally arousing images preceded by and then followed by Uh, what's called a mask, a visual mask. And that's just, think of it as a jumbled visual noise. You know, Photoshop, uh, cut up image, put it together. And uh, once we did actually years of piloting of, of this, if you get the timing just right, you can have a situation where the person is unable to report having seen and certainly unable to identify what might have been seen in the image that is quickly exposed to them and yet at the same time still be able to elicit other particularly bodily responses like changes in uh, amount of sweat gland activity measurable from the skin surface or you know various other measures of, of, of physiology that we used.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of like an unconscious measure or you don't realize you're seeing something but your body's responding.
0: Right, so may- maybe I, w- I would phrase it in, in this way only because there's a little controversy that still exists about to what extent is it is it actually preventing conscious awareness mm. or perhaps interrupting, the flow of processes in consciousness, such that it never makes it to something that can be reportable in memory. You know, it's a technical point, but that's the business uh, that that we had been in. So to cut to the chase, where I think that was helpful to us, that procedure was we saw evidence of emotion regulation in terms of uh, an overall Uh, enhancement among the longer-term meditation practitioners of the measures of positivity, for example, activity in the facial muscles involved in in the smile, as opposed to those more involved in frown or or grimace uh, in the forehead. And uh, the fact that we were seeing that, even in this masked condition, suggested to us that whatever it is that might be correlated with length of of time of meditation practice was happening very, very early in the processing uh, within the mind-brain of uh, these emotionally salient images. Mm -hmm. So what is it that might happen so early that would change the way in which you know, within milliseconds of, of processing right. of these images might occur.
1: And just to clarify, um, when you're measuring those facial muscles, you can detect like very tiny amounts of activity, right? So it's not like the person is actually smiling or frowning or having that response, but it's almost like the tendency or the preparation to do that kind of?
0: Well, yeah, Im- important question. So, so it, yeah, these, these would not be what would be visible uh, in terms of an observer's say, rating of a you know a smile or a frown. In fact, um, the the amount of change is so small that that's why we need uh, these physiologic, highly amplified measures of uh, the subtle changes in the muscle activity. Yeah, so you might think of it as a kind of preparation
1: mm-hmm. for
0: response, and we often think about emotion. Physiology uh, in general as being preparation for response. Right. So, um, you know, what what are the candidates for what might be changing so early on? And certainly, it opens the door to questions of, um, you know, how self is regarded, and therefore um, how we appraise anything that we experience. So, if Um, In practice, I come to experience self as not this independent entity separate from others, persistent over time. In other words, self becomes to feel more like something that changes and is very situational. Uh, I might well, uh, again, really very early in the processing, Change the way in which something is relevant to me, and and in in emotion response, we think that you know what's key is uh, uh, appraising something, and by that I don't mean you know a sort of explicit um, conscious appraisal, but something that makes very quick sense out of uh, what's occurring. That uh, it, it might well change the ways in which we judge something in that way as being relevant or not. So that's where it it led us. I continue to be very interested in the nature of self-experience in meditation practice, although since I retired from my uh, academic position and closed my laboratory, that interest expresses itself in uh, my meditation practice and teaching today.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up the self because that was certainly um, on my list of things to chat with you about. And it's funny because it comes up in almost every conversation (laughs) that I have on the show. Um, And I think that's just uh, evidence of how central those processes are to contemplative practice and, you know, the insights that come from it. So I'm wondering, yeah, if you want to expand at all on how you view that now, because you're also so well trained in in Buddhism and Buddhist practice. And so you have such a rich amount of subjective experience on those shifts in the self. And then, you know, I know you, you said you're not studying this personally, but have you tracked or were you kind of keeping tabs on what was happening in the neuroscience world or the cognitive science world? with ideas around self and any intersections there, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, I I have continued to be interested in, and while I don't read the literature with the same, I would say, diligence, I continue to stay informed by it, because Mm -hmm. I think it's important in uh, how I approach my teaching in in Zen Buddhism. When uh, we did those studies that I was just mentioning, One of the unexpected things we observed, we had recruited people, we wanted to study longer term meditation practitioners, so we recruited people that had a minimum of five years of practice experience, very regular daily practice experience, and who also had, you know, some retreat experience. When we first looked at the data, we noticed that uh, there was pretty wide variability among those people, not only in the amount of time they had been practicing, which ranged from five to more than 20 years, uh, but also in the measures that we were obtaining from that experiment. And so we divided then that group of people into two subgroups, one that had been practicing for five to 10 years, and another that had been practicing 10 plus years of approximately equal size groups. And when we then compared them, uh, we saw that there were considerable differences, and I'll try to, to summarize those. In those people who were practicing from five to 10 years, It looked as though their differences from the non-practicing comparison group, those who were so-called meditation naive, uh, was primarily in what I might call effortful Mm. emotion regulation, where they described, we had a a very lengthy self-report protocol, both a questionnaire as well as, as interview. And it appeared as though you know, they would experience the arousal of of some emotion, let's just say anger. Mm -hmm. And then they would do various things post that initial arousal to regulate the expression and also the experience of of that emotion. In those who were practicing more than 10 years, it looked much more automatic. They didn't Mm. report that they were doing anything particular. Um... In fact, their experience was that you know emotion was simply uh, arising and, and uh, returning to equanimity in a you know, much more spontaneous mm. kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it was really that that also contributed to our thinking about what might be changing in the, the nature of, of self-control. Mm. It corresponds with uh, some of my own personal practice experience, you know, careful not to overgeneralize to, to other practitioners, but my own experience was that uh, in, initially there, there was much more that uh, I was explicitly reflecting on in regard to, to self. I had, you know, contexts from things I read and from uh, interactions with my teacher which, uh, you know, developed certain kinds of expectations. But there came to be a kind of embodied sense that how I was experiencing this self, the self that's, you know, inside this particular encasement of skin, uh, was very different than it had been uh, prior to my practice life. But that change happens slowly uh, and sometimes even imperceptibly over, you know, a number of years of practice.
1: Hmm, how so?
0: You know, putting words to it, which, of course, I'm, I'm borrowing from, you know, the tradition in which I, I practice. So very right. hard to disentangle what's what I would call primary experience from, you know, that which is colored by uh, that that study that um, I, I don't have a sense of a kind of persistence
1: mm. of a
0: self. And I don't have a sense of uh, a kind of independence of that self. It, it not only seems to me in terms of my concepts that I am always changing and deeply entangled with everything and everyone else. Uh, with which I'm interacting. But it also feels deeply like that. So um, not the kind of, you know, experience of whether responding with uh, anxiety or, you know, threat anticipation or, you know, some other things that were just part of my common experience before my practice life. Uh, feel quite different now.
1: That's so interesting. And I imagine it is hard to put words to how that feels different. So do you feel like those experiences of emotion of anger or threat or fear or something like that don't arise so much or they just kind of pass through or like, how does that become or how does that show up in a self that's more interdependent? Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank you. So I wouldn't say that it doesn't arise because I can notice, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a sort of inkling of what, what I would, you know, think of as just prior to the arising of a, a full emotional experience. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, subtle and usually rather vague, uh, bodily experience. In other words, it's not as though I could say, ah, you know, I noticed my heart rate changing, or I notice, uh, you know, a change in the, the feeling of my abdomen. Um, and by the way, as a sidebar, I think this uh, telegraphs a particular problem that we have and will have in the study of emotion and emotion regulation uh, in contemplative practice, and that is that it may be uh, quite subtle and diffuse, Mm -hmm. the phenomenology, the experiential part of it. Right. Uh, And so, uh, you know, for a while we thought, oh, maybe we can use measures like uh, awareness of heart rate as a way to index interoceptivity, the sensitivity to bodily signals. That didn't pan out very well for us and also not for some other labs as well. So uh, that became um, important for how we then thought about how how do you proceed on with with research on on this. Uh, but back to uh, you know my own personal uh, experience, uh, I notice uh, in some of these more diffuse kinds of bodily experiences what I would think of as a kind of early warning signal. Mm-hmm. And what happens then is that becomes part of the experiential context, which includes, you know, maybe it's a person uh, that I'm interacting with that's before me, and that then sets off other things. So, for example, uh, perhaps I pay more immediate attention to, ah, what's going on here. I often experience that not not as a An explicit uh, sort of verbal cognition, but as a kind of attitude of what is this? What is this? Mm -hmm. And that I see as a kind of shift in attention, a shift in not only the intensity of attention to the situation, but a a broadening of the scope of attention such that I'm noticing perhaps more in, in the context. And then it seems as though that in many ways in and of itself is a part of the regulatory process because it's, I'm, I'm no longer attending to some of what often you know, triggers an emotional response, which is a narrative.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's say I'm in a, uh, a dispute with, with someone else or a potential dispute. And, uh, you know, we all experience how easy it is to fall into, you know, those narratives of how dare he or she say that or, you know. Yeah. So by broadening that context, it's automatically changing uh, the nature of how I'm appraising the situation. And it's a change that includes. A different way of experiencing that relationship. That it's no longer this person that's doing something that affects this me inside here, but it's a flowing process of moment by moment interaction. And in that kind of noticing, I'm aware that, you know, there's not a me so much here that has a stake in this. Mm. It can become, you know, simply something of, of interest that implicit, hmm, what is this? Um, so I hope that makes a little bit of, of sense in my personal experience of that process.
1: It does. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That was really clear. Um, a couple of things that come up for me when you're describing that. One is when you talk about having this more um, vague sense of, your internal bodily states, even before what you might call an emotion full blown would arise. Yes. It's making me think of the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett. I don't know how familiar yes. you are with her work, but I am
0: much admire her work.
1: Yeah, she uh, often talks about affect. Well, I mean, many people in the emotion world have this distinction between kind of a very core, basic affect, um, which would be a more simple bodily response, arousal. And valence, perhaps, so positive and negative, and then higher or lower arousal. So that then like feeds into a larger conceptual process that we would label as an emotion, right? Like, oh, this is, this means anger or something that we've almost been taught through society and family and everything else to categorize as actually an emotion. So do you feel like your experience aligns with that and you're kind of shifting more toward? tapping into that basic affect side of things?
0: Yeah, wonderful. The short answer is yes. Uh, and it's one of the reasons uh, I, I found Lisa Feldman Barrett's work so resonant. Yeah. Is that, uh, you know, upon uh, reading some of the earlier studies and, and then her book where she really you know, unfolds all of this uh, so nicely, uh, it really rang true. Uh, with with my own contemplative practice experience, that uh, you know there there are these differentiable aspects, and when I talked about uh, a moment ago how shifting what I was attending to in the context, say of this interaction with another person, context is it seems so important in determining what we label as and uh, conceptualize as a a discrete emotion. And I think, you know, often that kind of conceptualization drives other subsequent things in our actions, in our Mm. speech, in our behavior, uh, that, uh, you know, can be skillful or not so skillful, depending upon the particular emotion and, and the context.
1: Yeah, so that's really cool because um, it lines up with other, I guess, experiences or evidence that I tend to think about, about meditation, helping to shift out of the conceptual mind, maybe yes. more into the embodied experience. Yeah, yeah.
0: there's there's a teacher in, in Zen tradition of the last century, Japanese teacher, uh, who often spoke of opening the hand of thought. And I mm. thought it was a, a very apt phrase. Uh, because you know that that after all is is a part of the experience of, of our practice on the you know cushion or or chair that something arises uh, in our awareness. There's you know a, a conceptual activation uh, and there's a noticing of it, and then a kind of gentle, non judgmental letting go of, we don't cling on to the processing of it, Mm -hmm. or develop a narrative about it, or you know, equally sticky, we don't, you know, push it away, reject it.
1: The other thing that what you were just describing made me think of is I love how you brought in the way that you use your attention uh, to kind of expand, or you said, kind of um, have a more all-encompassing frame about this dynamic or whatever's happening. So that just that interweaving between what we think of as emotion and attention, and you know, I think in cognitive science, historically, those have been different fields and different literatures and viewed as different processes, but they're so integrated. Yes. So, yeah, just wondering if you have reflections on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, some of your own research on connectivity measures in uh, the brain Mm -hmm. in uh, meditator practitioners uh, has influenced my thinking about that, as has, you know, the simple anatomic study of systems in the brain that have... Uh, historically been identified as important in emotion, as important in in attention. Enormous overlap, mm-hmm. you know, uh, almost to the point of, of identity. And I think that's congruent with Lisa Feldman Barrett's theoretic perspective that, you know, emotion really is um, inextricably caught within that Context appraisal that necessarily involves attention, what we attend to, how broadly we attend, um, the process by which we attend and then shift attending. I think that uh, you know it's it's all of a of a common thread,
1: yeah, and then I'm just wondering, um, as you've experienced over your history with practice, these shifts in your own processing of emotions and experience of self have you noticed changes kind of in your daily life or just how you show up in the world things that are a little more tractable
0: yeah yeah my usual answer is i don't know you should ask my wife yes (laughs) (laughs) um but i I will say i you know I, i certainly experience um a sense of ease and a contentment in my day-to-day life, that you know was fairly unfamiliar hmm. uh, in in uh, my earlier, especially pre-dedicated practice life. Now, you know an, another sidebar that has to do with um, the the methodology of our approaches to the, the study of, of meditation. Uh, is that, you know, not only have my numbers of years of meditation practice increased over time, uh, but so has my age. <laughs> right. And we also have a body of literature on, uh, you know, normative uh, changes correlating with, with age uh, that are often kind of in the same direction. Mm. And so, You know, we we have this dilemma where, you know, what we would optimally like is to be able to, you know, randomly assign people to meditation training and then follow them for the rest of their lives. Right. Uh, You know, needless to say, it's not feasible. Uh, The the study outlives the investigator, uh, and nobody's going to fund the costs that that would involve. Uh, So, you know, I think what we're faced with is uh, an approach in which we kind of continuously shift back and forth between those sort of uh, randomization experimental studies and studies of uh, people who have been meditating uh, for longer periods of time, and they're self-selected, so Mm -hmm. we don't know, you know, whether what we're seeing is something attributable to meditation or or something that reflects pre-existing status that also determines how long you stick with a meditation practice. Uh, but when we see convergences in the, the evidence we're observing from those two different kinds of approaches, I think we begin to to be a little more confident that it's something we might be able to, again, tentatively. Hypothetically, a tribute to the practice of meditation,
1: mm.
0: always staying open to possibilities that, uh, you know, we, we can be fooling ourselves.
1: Yeah. Um, I remember that you once mentioned to me, we were having some conversation about meditation and brain function, and you said something about how meditation is largely inhibition. Mm. I don't know if you remember the context of what we were talking about then, or if you have any yeah. further thoughts on that. It always stuck with me. Yeah. What I,
0: I'm i often fond of saying is, you know, it's, it's very unlikely that as human beings, we have a free will in any comprehensive sense. Mm-hmm. So you know, much as I might like to um, take off and fly around the room as we're talking, I was born without wings. Uh, and so uh, I, I can't put that intention into action. And I'm constrained by all kinds of, you know, much more subtle uh, things in my past experience and the results of my actions. In the tradition, we talk about karma Uh, cause and effect, especially uh, the effects of one's prior actions. I think what we do have and and what we perhaps are expanding upon in meditation practice is free won't, especially those gaps as we learn to uh, sit still and, and quiet, those gaps between what is arising in the mental continuum and what is impelling our actions uh, allows us a kind of of freedom in which we either do or do not follow through with the action, whether it's speech or some bodily action uh, that is consistent with what is arising, you know, both in the flow of you know, various kinds of sensory and conceptual experience, as well as the flow of experience of information from the body. Uh, and just maybe that's the kind of, of freedom that that we're gaining in a life of practice.
1: Mm, nice. I'm thinking back to, you know, these ideas around self and, and expanding our concept of self or having it become more interdependent. Wondering your thoughts on the implications of that kind of societally today for problems of othering that we see um, certainly nowadays so prevalent. And the more I swim around in this work, I, you know, see it bigger and bigger picture, like othering of other groups of people, animals, nature, you know, all of these systems that we feel Separate from yeah. just yeah. Any reflections?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. There, you, you don't have to look too far to find, you know, all kinds of things in the the media and and other places, uh, noticing the what what appears to be a kind of rise in narcissism, in self preoccupation and um, a distorted. Uh, appraisal of, of self and the role of that self in, in the world. Yeah, I, I think that um, there's enormous potential and, you know, how, how one actualizes that potential is a, a whole nother set of questions, but enormous potential of the things that contemplative traditions and practice have brought for addressing some of what, you know, really ha- has become, you know, we, we live in a culture of toxic polarities,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not just political and religious, but all sorts of ways in which we differentiate and distance and hierarchically approach our relationships with, with others, others not only other sentient beings, other humans, other animals, um, but the, the rest of the, the living world mm. as well. So, you know, I think that's where, you know, often a, a hope comes. How we can most skillfully make those practices and insights more broadly available, as I said, another set of, of questions. Not everyone has access to teaching within the traditions from which these practices have arisen. Not everyone uh, would feel themselves compatible with those traditions. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of you know some wonderful work that's going on today in how, how one might secularize these practices to make them more accessible, appealing, Acceptable.
1: I guess I'll throw out kind of a big question or feel free to opine if you if you have thoughts on it just from your the unique perspective that you have now of, of a career of studying the mind through the perspective of science and um, neuroscience and psychology and then also through Buddhism and first-person experience what's your view these days on the mind like how do you even conceive of it if it's possible to talk about
0: yeah that's a wonderful question to speculate about. I certainly don't see mind as something that uh, unfolds within the confines of the skull or even the skull in and what's inside it in interaction with the rest of the body. That's of course a part and an important part of the processes we call mind. But I increasingly sense Mind, as first of all, as a process, it's Mm. not an entity. Mm -hmm. You know, it sometimes leads me to quip that, uh, you know, the universe is entirely composed of verbs and and no nouns. Uh, All is process. And importantly, that process uh, necessarily involves. What's unfolding in interaction between what I experience as, you know, my conscious point of reference,
1: mm-hmm.
0: my experiential center of, uh, of self, and everything else, everyone and everything else. Now that, I think, for the sciences of mind. Poses an interesting dilemma, right? Because uh, within psychology, certainly we have been inclined to study mind intra personally. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, such uh, disciplines as social psychology that focus on on uh, the social and, and interaction, but we don't have anything approximating at this point a really complete science of, of mind that fully incorporates all of the complex dynamic system uh, interactions moment by moment by moment that are uh, occurring and seem to me to be, you know, any, anything short of that full appreciation is, is a partial yes. study of mind and can sometimes be misleading because of that partiality.
1: Right but then at the same time it's almost like how could you ever get the whole view you know since it includes yeah yeah arguably everything
0: <laughs> right right and uh maybe one cannot yeah uh or our our species cannot uh you know sometimes i i think well you know that's that's the good news i mean you know first of all it's sort of the mind scientist's full employment act. You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't run out of things to ask about.
1: Right. Uh,
0: but also, less and less do I care about the answers mm-hmm. to the questions we raise about mind as I do about the process by which we're asking those questions. And mm-hmm. I'm so impressed with how the evolution of change in, in, in questions we ask and in, and in how we ask them has resulted in radical modifications in the way uh, we've come to think about mind mm. over over time.
1: can you give an example
0: yeah you know, i I entered uh, into study of, of psychology during the period in which behaviorism was dominant, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until uh, there were some you know really signal observations about Uh, For example, how, you know, you you couldn't uh, put together a a theory of, um, you know, any complex behavior by simply stringing together, you know, we used to talk about, you know, big S's, uh, you know, external stimulus, little S's, a kind of internalized stimulus, big R's, the overt response, little R's, the internalized sub-response. Uh, all of that would take too long to unfold,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, the nature of you know, everything from nerve conduction velocity to the number of synapses, et cetera. Uh, it, it just wasn't possible for that to be a, a, an adequate account. And that was part of the cognitive revolution. Right. Uh, so that was a major change in, in how we thought about mind. And I think what we're seeing today is a much greater appreciation when we talk about, for example, extended mind. Mm -hmm. It's a way of signaling our appreciation that, um, you know, the tools we use, our artifacts, everything from a a ruler to, you know, my cell phone, my smartphone, Mm -hmm. uh, are extensions of mind. That mind is embodied. Everything that is occurring um, in brain is influencing and influenced by what else is occurring in the body. Right. That uh, mind is embedded there. You know, it's a there's a context. I think that has become, if not the the modal way of appreciating mind, certainly an increasingly important way. Yeah. So that's a very big change, uh, and who knows what ways um, you know changes in. Our methods in our ways of making phenomenological observations, our our observations of experience, and our technologies will will change all of that in into the the future. Mm. I won't be around to see you know a great deal more of it occurring, uh, but I think it's just awfully darn exciting.
1: <laughs> That's great. Um, do you have any? Closing thoughts or take-home messages for the audience that you'd like to share from your perspective and your career.
0: Well, thank you. One, I guess that that's you know responsive to the context of our conversation right now is that uh, the Mind and Life Institute, as well as other um, organizations and institutions that have worked so hard over, you know, an increasing amount of time now to bring together what had been uh, separate traditions, you know, even magisteria. Mm. Uh, so, so important. Yeah. Because I really think that uh, not only what is most exciting, but what is most likely to result in consequential Changes, and by that I mean changes that are likely to affect how we live, our cultures, uh, the ways in which we get along with each other, really are at the interstices in uh, between those traditional domains, Mm. Uh, and the new insights and and ways of conceptualizing and acting upon come out of those interactions.
1: I couldn't agree more. I love the in-between spaces. Yeah. Well, any other, anything to close? or Are you feeling complete?
0: (laughs) Thank goodness I'm not yet feeling complete. So if if it's okay with you, I'll, you know, continue breathing and that kind of thing for a little bit to go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, No, not for now. Not for now, uh, but just uh, want to express my gratitude for the opportunity, uh, not only to, you know, have the conversation, but to be able to uh, virtually see and and interact with you, uh, a friend and colleague for some time now.
1: Well, thank you so much, Al. This has been wonderful and a personal deep bow of gratitude to you. You've been a great teacher and mentor to me over the years, so I really appreciate Mm -hmm. you taking the time to join us today.
0: Thank you so much, Wendy.
1: This season of Mind and Life is supported by the Academy for the Love of Learning, dedicated to awakening the natural love of learning in people of all ages. Episodes are edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. The music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.